As Billy Joel once said, it's a matter of trust. The lead starts right now. The virus is not the only fight facing the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Critics are shooting arrows at the agency's credibility and the CDC director smack dab in the center of the bullseye. It's not the news the Biden administration wanted to hear. Fewer jobs added in December than in any other month in 2021. But there is some good news about how much you're taking home. And what a cluster. 27,000, yes, 27,000 U.S. flights canceled since Christmas Eve. What is it going to take to end our travel nightmare? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today in our health lead and the CDC battling an apparent credibility problem. Today, the agency's director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, took questions from reporters in her first solo news conference since July after facing a barrage of criticism, including from within the White House and the CDC, over isolation guidance that even allies call confusing. Walensky admitting that the past few weeks have been particularly challenging. She noted that as, a, as the science changes... The guidance has to change as well. And she went on to say, quote, this is hard and I am committed to continue to improve, unquote. Now, former Biden administration health advisors are urging the White House to shift its COVID strategy. As CNN's Alexandra Field reports, these advisors, former advisors, want the president to prioritize ways for our society to learn to live and function with the virus instead of chasing what now to them seems an impossible goal to eradicate it as the Omicron variant continues to spread. I'm honored to join you today. Facing mounting criticism, the CDC director is speaking out. This is hard, and I am committed and to continue to improve as we learn more about the science and to communicate that with all of you. The agency under fire again, this time for confusing guidance on isolation as people, businesses, and schools forge their own way forward. People just want to be safe. I mean, it is... um, It is a surge that we're concerned about. In California's Bay Area, teachers are protesting current COVID protocols, staging a sick out. In Chicago, the city is still fighting for in-person learning with a teachers' union that voted to go remote. Most schools there canceled for a third day. It's our kids who are being affected by it, and parents need to be at that table as well. But a major push to keep kids in class now comes from one of the nation's most prominent hospitals. Children's Hospital of Philadelphia says even in times of significant community transmission, kids should be in school. The hospital supports putting more exposed but asymptomatic students and staff back in class with masks and calls for less testing of asymptomatic individuals. So our new normal will look like a Uh, a future where we have SARS-CoV-2, but it's not a panic. It's not a crisis. It's not devastating our our public health infrastructure and our economy the way we see it today. Six former advisors to President Joe Biden are now calling for new measures from the White House to move Americans more quickly toward a new normal. Among the suggestions, quicker updates to vaccines to keep pace with the changing virus. COVID is going to be around us, just like The flu is around us, and we're going to have to live with that, and we're going to have to bring the mortality rates down uh, to make it so we can go back to our normal, everyday lives. At the Supreme Court, justices are hearing arguments today against COVID vaccine mandates affecting large businesses and some health care workers. That, as New York's governor announces, she'll require booster shots for all health care workers, the first state in the nation to do so. You would want to make sure that anyone taking care of you is fully protected. 
Moderna's CEO is the latest to say a fourth shot could be needed for some by fall as hospitalizations approach an all-time high and as the average number of daily cases tops 600,000. The governor of West Virginia says the time for fourth shot is already here. Governor Jim Justice requesting permission from the CDC and the FDA to give an extra booster to people who need them most. And on that question of a fourth shot, Dr. Walensky is saying we need to get more people to take a third shot before we really talk about a fourth shot. Just about 35% of people who are eligible for a booster have actually gone ahead and gotten a booster, despite what we know already about how effective that booster can be, Jake. Alexandra Field, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's turn now to new CNN reporting CDC scientists and White House officials growing increasingly frustrated with the CDC director, Dr. Walensky's handling of public health guidance and what they see as continued missteps. CNN's Caitlin Collins helped to break the story. And Caitlin, what is Dr. Walensky doing to fix what her critics perceive as a messaging mess? Well, Jake, she said today she is committed to making communication at the CDC better. It has been something that has been an issue ever since she took this job in January. It was an issue long before she got there, but she did come into the job vowing to restore trust in the CDC. And so that's been really the big issue here. So in part, she has started doing media training. This is something that we are told by sources she started last fall. It's a way to try to improve her own communication skills because she's often the face of the CDC going out there and communicating the new guidance as she did recently when they changed that isolation period. If you've tested positive for COVID-19, that is something that generated a lot of criticism, not just from people who were confused by it, Jake, but also from doctors who said, yes, it did need a testing component to it. And so the other thing that we've heard, Jake, though, is this criticism, though, is not just coming from out Outside the CDC. It's also coming from inside the CDC, where it's a lot of career staffers who some of them have worked at the agency their entire lives. And they don't feel like sometimes when she is crafting the guidance here uh, that she's really reaching out to enough people. They say it's just too small of a circle of advisors that she's talking to. Maybe they're not getting enough input for someone to say, hey, this isn't so reasonable or this might be a better way to implement this idea. And so that has really been the issues that we've heard from sources, from officials within the CDC about this. And so whether or not it changes now that she's taking these cl- these, uh, this media training, that she's trying to make these efforts, that remains to be seen. And also whether or not it's too late, Jake, because a lot of people have said it's just too confusing what's coming out of the CDC and they're not really sure what to do. Hmm. Karen Collins, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So Sanjay, first of all, I should know, Dr. Walensky, when she was uh, in Boston, in, in, uh, as a, just a regular physician, she was on our show all the time. She was a great communicator. Yeah. Uh, she was one of our favorite guests, but obviously something else is going on. She hasn't had a solo CDC media briefing in nearly six months. Um, and beyond her personal messaging struggles, the agency itself has faced criticism for a while over its confusing COVID guidance, changing COVID guidance as well. Did you hear anything today that you think might help restore confidence in the agency's messages? I, I think it's a it's a start, uh, Jake. I mean, the idea that uh, just having a solo briefing, as you mentioned, hasn't happened in a long time, half a year, that's important. If you go back to H1N1 days and Ebola days, you had Tom Frieden and Richard Besser 
who were in the job at that point. And you got regular briefings from the CDC. You got let in on the thinking process. You didn't just hear from them when there was some huge change. I mean, even as reporters, and I talked to Dr. Walensky uh, offline, off TV quite a bit, but even for us reporters, a lot of times it's a sudden change that we're not clued into. So we're not really getting a sort of a, um, a process of, of what's happening or the thinking behind what's happening here. Listen to how she framed some of the criticism today, responded to it. We're in an unprecedented time with the speed of Omicron cases rising, and we are working really hard to get information to the American public and balancing that with the realities that we're all living with. This is hard, and I am committed and to continue to improve as we learn more about the science and to communicate that with all of you. As, as things stand now, Jake, you know, there was a poll that was done just last month basically asking the question about trust in the CDC. And what, what they found was that uh, about 29% had a great deal of trust, um, a fair amount, 37%, not so much, 33%. Um, that may have eroded even a little bit more over the last month. But I will tell you, Jake, you know, just having covered these sorts of stories for a long time, there was a study in 2015 that talked about uh, public health officials' trust around Ebola, and it was around 31%. So it's a tough situation, and I think as a result of that, uh, there's always gonna be a lot of criticism, no matter what. And uh, having more press conferences like she did today and being transparent, I think is gonna go a long way towards restoring that. I do, I do have to wonder if there is also a degree to which uh, she's being a fall guy in some ways for, or fall girl, uh, for the Biden administration. Because the, one of the criticisms of her recently, we talked about this earlier this week, was that the CDC, when it came out with the question about whether or not people should take tests before they remove themselves yes. from isolation, uh, she basically said that's up to you. The CDC said that's up to you. But one of the problems is there aren't enough tests. That's not Dr. Walensky's fault. That's the Biden administration's fault. So some of this, I wonder how much of this is blaming her for, for failures administration-wide. Yeah, no, I, I, I wonder about some of the machinations that are going on behind the scenes. We know that Dr. Walensky is an advocate of these rapid antigen tests. She wrote papers about this before she became the CDC director, touting their utility in terms of doing exactly what we're asking them to do now, determine if someone is still contagious. She wrote scientific papers about this. So then to come out and say, look, maybe they're useful, they can be optional, um, maybe, you know, maybe she is the fall guy on this because the, the fundamental problem is if we, if we don't have enough tests. If we had enough tests, I think it's very clear to everyone that the guidelines would be different. That you yeah. should test. If you're positive, you, you stay home. If you're, if, you're not, if you're negative, you can go out. You're not contagious. Dr. Fauci has telegraphed himself the need for more of these tests. And so you also see some fracture lines between the CDC and, and Dr. Fauci over this issue as well. It's been a problem the entire pandemic, yeah. Jake. And I, I, it, it baffles me still at this point. I mean, we got vaccines. We've done all these things. You got to give Operation Warp Speed credit for making all these at-risk investments on vaccines and things like that. Haven't done that with regard to tests. We don't have enough still. Even masks. I mean, I got masks here, but a lot of people still don't you know, have access to N95 and KN95 masks. And even therapeutics, Jake. I mean, there's a very effective therapeutic, this Paxlovid. It's a new protease inhibitor from, from uh, Pfizer. Very effective. It's pretty clear that we don't have enough of that, 250,000 or so treatments. We may need a lot more if we had made at-risk investments in something like that six months ago, right. we wouldn't be in a position where we may have to ration some of these important, important items. You're making my point 
Far better than I was making it. Um, let me ask you also, uh, Sanjay, there are three pieces published in the medical journal JAMA, the Journal of the Amer- American Medical, uh, medical Association. In them, six former Biden health advisors proposed a, a new plan for testing, mitigation, vaccines, treatments. Their main argument was that the White House needs to start pursuing and selling, frankly, a, a policy of the United States, learning to live, learning to fully function in a world with COVID, uh, instead of setting a goal that maybe we can never reach of, of getting rid of COVID entirely. What do you make of the advice? Yeah, I think, you know, since the spring of last year, given the contagiousness of this virus, even at that time, uh, the CDC director, Dr. Redfield, said, look, this, this is here to stay. It is that contagious. It will become endemic at some point. I think there's two points that this, these papers raise. One is that the current situation is obviously untenable. I mean, we have hospitals that are becoming overwhelmed, and, and that's always, you know, that's a problem for society, not just for COVID patients. That's a problem for society because it's hard to take care of the other issues, medical issues that people may deal with in a society. But the, the, fun, you know, the idea that we are reactionary, so reactionary to what has been happening with COVID still two years into this is a problem. So they have all sorts of strategies, everything from let's invest in universal vaccines, let's make sure that the, the stockpiles are full of masks and therapeutics and all these types of things. We almost got to think of this as a defense footing. We're on defense footing instead of looking at this as a weather event where we can't do anything about it, shelter in place, you know, and just wait for it to pass. I think that's the point they're getting at. Yeah. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Have a great weekend, my friend. The White House trying to find the bright spots after the December jobs report does not meet expectations again. And then it was the trial that almost did not happen. Today, the men, the murderers who killed Ahmaud Arbery while he was out jogging were sentenced. What did the judge hand down? Stay with us. In the money lead today, a disappointing monthly jobs report this morning showing that the U.S. economy added only 199,000 new jobs in December. That is the fewest jobs added in any month of the Biden presidency and only half of the number that economists expected to see. That means in four of the last five months, the job gains did not meet expectations. In this report, we should note, measured job growth before the Omicron variant spread in the U.S. President Biden spoke today, tried to focus on the few bright spots in the report. We're going to talk about all of it. But before I do, I I do want to take one moment here to highlight that in May 2018, the chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, tweeted, great news for our economy and workforce. Unemployment fell to 3.9 percent last month, the lowest since December 2000. The unemployment rate today under Biden in the midst of a pandemic is the exact same as then, 3.9%. But GOP Chair McDaniel is out there attacking the report today, a rather intellectually dishonest way to look at numbers. But let's bring in Rana Faruhar. She's a CNN global economic analyst and associate editor for the Financial Times. Rana, let's put the, the nonsense politics away and just talk about the facts here. Before the pandemic, 199,000 jobs added to the economy would be something to celebrate. But as you know, almost two years into the pandemic, these, these are not normal times. No, absolutely. But, you know, I think it goes to one of the core principles of economics. It's all relative. I mean, we had a huge dip. We just came out of a global pandemic or we're on our way out, I should say. Um, So when you look at what we have seen in the past, you know, 300,000, we were expecting to see almost 450,000. That's off a very low base. 
So, you know, if you kind of go back to what normal looked like before the pandemic, 200,000 jobs created would have been very, very respectable in any given month. In fact, that's the, the normal trend rate for the U.S. The timing of this report's key because these numbers capture U.S. jobs as of mid-December, well before the surge of Omicron-related cases in the U.S. And even then, in this new jobs report, 3.1 million Americans reported that they had been unable to work because their employer closed or lost business due to the pandemic. So should we expect things for the next jobs report will get worse? I think so. You know, I I think the fact that these numbers were collected before you had all the shutdowns that we're seeing now, um, you know, women, although, you know, starting to come back into the workforce, maybe having to deal now with childcare issues again. So I'm looking for January to be disappointing. That said, what we're seeing globally is that Really, um, the new variant seems to be about a two-month up-and-down cycle. Uh, So it could be that we'll see one or two disappointing months, and then we'll be back to more normal growth in the spring. So we saw often throughout this pandemic, it was women largely staying home when schools went to virtual learning. Now the percentage of women working or looking for work is at the highest level since the pandemic uh, began, which is some, you know, rare good news in this report. What do you credit that to? Yeah. Well, you know, we heard a lot in the beginning of the pandemic about the she session, right? Women stepping off the, the track, you know, having to deal with child care, elder care, um, uh, certain job areas that women are predominant in, services, jobs, restaurants, travel and leisure. Those were shut down. Then they came back. I actually think that the she session is overplayed. I think that going forward and particularly once we're out from the pandemic, we are going to see women coming back into the labor force. They want to work. They need to work. And the areas in which um, they have uh, higher percentages of employment, healthcare um, areas like that, you know, travel uh, service sectors, those are what's increasing. So I'm not so worried about the she session. I think it's been overplayed. President Biden noted that 6.4 million jobs added in 2021 is the most jobs added in a calendar year by any president. He also touted that wages are up. Take a listen. Women and men who work in the frontline jobs in restaurants, hotels, travel, tourism, desk clerks, line cooks, waitstaff, bellmen, they all saw their wages at a historic high, the highest in history. Their pay went up almost 16% this year far ahead of inflation, which is still a concern. So could the Federal Reserve use all this as evidence of an improving economy despite despite inflation and use that as a reason to raise interest rates? Well, I think we are going to see rate hikes, no question. I mean, with with numbers, as you pointed out in the beginning, uh, so low in terms of unemployment, I mean, 3.9 percent. Inflation at a 40-year high, it's really hard to argue that you shouldn't see a rate hike. Um, I am a little bit worried about what that's going to mean for the market and for asset prices. You know, we've seen huge increases in stocks, uh, housing prices. That makes people feel wealthier and more comfortable. We probably are going to see some corrections. We may see those corrections in advance of the midterms. All right, Rana Farouar, thank you so much. Flying in the United States is anything but a vacation right now. This is maddening for everybody. Thousands of flights being canceled every day, and winter weather is not the only reason. Stay with us. In our national lead, it is a classic tale of the good, the bad, and the ugly for travelers today, especially on the East Coast. The good, fresh snow is pretty. The bad, 
That fresh snow makes traveling an absolute nightmare. And the ugly, you can add in the incredibly contagious, raging pandemic causing staffing shortages. Today alone, all this means that more than 2,600 flights were canceled. Just today, and as CNN's Pete Montine reports, at least passengers, airlines, and flight crews can agree on one thing. They are pissed. Airlines are once again axing flights by the thousands, this time thanks to the latest snowstorm hitting airports up the East Coast. New York's LaGuardia Airport is facing eight new inches of snow. If I got stuck here, then I probably wouldn't be as happy, but as long as I get home, I'm okay. I won't make it in time, so I just canceled my flight. I'm going to try to see hopefully tomorrow if I could find something. But it is winter weather along with airline worker shortages that have led to a perfect storm of cancellations nationwide. The latest figures from FlightAware show that U.S. airlines have canceled more than 27,000 flights since Christmas Eve. Cancellations so bad this week in Atlanta that travelers waited hours to get their checked bags back. I went to try to talk to someone about my bags and they just said that they would try their best to get out on my flight and that was basically all I heard about my bag. This is maddening for everybody. Industry analyst Henry Hardevelt says it is unlikely that airlines round the cancellations corner this month. An untold number of airline workers are calling out sick, either because they've been exposed to or infected with coronavirus. The random nature of Omicron means that you don't know which of your employees are going to get sick. While airlines are trying to take steps to reduce the impact, there's no way they can get to an absolute zero proof level of being disrupted. Alaska Airlines is the latest carrier to trim its flight schedule, proactively canceling 10% of January flights, citing the continued impacts of Omicron and unprecedented employee sick calls. Similar moves have been made by JetBlue and Delta. Southwest Airlines just canceled another five hundred flights across the country for the third day in a row. It was so cold that its Denver hub just yesterday that it temporarily halted arrivals for a time. Bit of good news here, Jake. This is typically a slow time for the airlines, but about a million and a half people are flying each day. A big inconvenience for many of them. Jake? What are airlines doing for customers to make up for all these canceled flights? The hope is that they try and cancel folks' flights before they get to the airport. They're trying to do this proactively so they don't end up in a mess here that they find out on their phone via a text message or in an email before they end up here at the airport. You know, it's a thing that the airlines are doing in a much larger way, a much larger degree. In fact, we actually had a hard time finding people today here at Reagan National Airport who could attest to their flights being canceled. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Big business says back off, and the Supreme Court seems to agree. The fight over vaccine mandates makes it to the highest court in the land. We're going to break down the arguments next. Welcome back in our politics lead. The U.S. Supreme Court appears poised to block President Biden's vaccine and testing requirements for private businesses of 100 employees or more. But in a separate challenge, some justices did seem more open to a vaccine mandate aimed at certain health care workers. According to the latest Kaiser Family Foundation report, nearly half of Americans already have a vaccine mandate at their workplace or want one. Let's discuss with CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic and CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig. Joan, it's a six to three conservative court. Liberals expressed clear approval uh, for the Biden administration's rules in both areas, but they're going to need 
at least two conservatives to join him. So naturally, all eyes are on Chief Justice Roberts, I would assume. That's right. At least Chief Justice Roberts. But he is a good barometer of where the court's headed on this one involving federal power. And it was quite a dramatic morning at the court. Went for nearly four hours, Jake. Uh, for the first time, the justices themselves were uh, wearing masks. That hadn't happened during oral arguments before. And between COVID and the snow, there were only about eight reporters in the room with uh, some law clerks and others. So uh, a lot of tension, a lot of drama. And I, I think what we, what we heard, and we'll know when they eventually rule, is that uh, they are not interested in upholding what uh, the OSHA requirement that would be on some 80 million workers, uh, on private businesses to either have vaccinations or testing. Chief Justice Roberts, uh, to your question, uh, talked about congressional power over agency power and state police powers. Uh, His message seemed to be that uh, OSHA had gone too far. At one point he said, we've never had anything like this. And uh, the Biden administration lawyer said, well, you know, federal law allows allows OSHA to go after infectious diseases like this. But we certainly haven't had a pandemic like this. That's why it seems so unprecedented. But for the second case that we heard, and that's the that's the uh, vaccine requirement for uh, workers at Medicare and Medicaid facilities, ones that uh, are funded by the federal government. Uh, In that situation, the chief suggested because the government can attach conditions to its funding, that this that one uh, might might pass muster. And in fact, he also mentioned that that would be a closer fit as far as he was concerned for healthcare workers having to get vaccinated. And Ellie, the Biden administration is planning to implement the first policy uh, requiring businesses with 100 or more workers to either mandate vaccines or weekly testing this coming Monday, but given what transpired today, is that really going to happen? I don't think so, Jake, having listened to the argument today. Really, this argument went on for four plus hours, but it boils down to two fundamental questions. One, is the mandate too broad? And two, who gets to decide? Now, the lawyers for the Biden administration argued it's not too broad. We're in an unprecedented emergency. We have what's called a grave danger under the law. We have to do something to stop this. And they argued it's really the federal government, OSHA's responsibility to issue this kind of regulation. But the lawyers for the challengers, which was a group of red-leaning states and businesses, argued, first of all, this is overbroad. It, it doesn't make any distinction as between one business and the other, no distinction as to geography or trends. And they argued, and they are right on this, traditionally, this is a state function. This is what we call the police powers of the state. And the justices seem to be very much in line with that. So I think they're leaning heavily towards striking this down. And Joan, I heard some assertions made by the Supreme Court justices today that were simply false. Uh, one example, Justice Sotomayor said, Quote, we have over 100,000 children, which we've never had before, in in serious condition and many on ventilators. That That's just not true. There are fewer than 5,000 minors hospitalized with COVID right now. Seen there on the right, we're showing the figures. Not 100,000. And that includes minors who were admitted because of COVID and ones who tested positive but had been hospitalized for other reasons. What do you make of this? Well, there were a lot of facts and figures thrown out from uh Justices across the spectrum that uh, uh, some of them certainly raise questions from from uh, people who really know their stuff on this issue. And I do have to say, Justice Sotomayor, uh, she's she's not so much speaking to her colleagues. She's not so much trying to persuade them. Uh, She's speaking uh, beyond the walls of the court. 
Usually it's Justices uh, Breyer and uh, Kagan who try to be more persuasive to their fellow colleagues with the arguments they're making and the questions that they're asking. But even uh, neither of them actually uh, were able to get much traction in the case uh, involving the 84 million workers, the OSHA case. Uh, at, one, at one point, uh, Justice Kagan came right out and said, everyone knows that vaccinations work. Everyone knows that that's what saves lives. But uh, her colleagues on the right wing were coming at it from a very different direction. Uh, and as you probably know, Justice Sotomayor actually wasn't in the room. She was, uh, because she has diabetes, she was... Uh, uh, listening to the arguments and asking questions from her chambers. Yeah, I mean, facts are important, though, uh, right. especially in the U.S. Supreme Court. Joan, Ellie, thanks to both of you. Uh, really uh, appreciate it. Thanks, uh, coming up, an emotional day as Ahmad Arbery's killers are sentenced for chasing him down and murdering him while he was out for a jog. Stay with us. I sat in that courtroom for five weeks straight. But I knew that we would come out with a victory. Yes. I never doubted it. That was Ahmad Arbery's mother reacting just moments ago to the sentencing of the three men convicted of murdering her 25-year-old son as he jogged through a Georgia neighborhood nearly two years ago. The judge giving two of the three defendants the maximum possible sentence, life in prison without the possibility of parole, the third got life, but with the possibility of parole. CNN's Ryan Young reports on the long journey for justice in this case. Today, the defendants are being held accountable for their actions. Two of the three men convicted of killing Ahmaud Arbery sentenced to spend the rest of their lives in prison. For Travis and Gregory McMichael, it's life without the possibility of parole. After Ahmaud Arbery fell, the McMichaels turned their backs to a disturbing image, and they walked away. This was a killing. It was callous. William Bryan Jr. sentenced to serve life with the possibility of parole after 30 years. He had grave concerns that what had occurred should not have occurred. And I think that does make Mr. Bryan's situation a little bit different. However, Mr. Bryan has been convicted of felony murder. Before the sentences, the court heard powerful statements from Ahmaud Arbery's family. I laid you to rest. I told you I love you. And someday, somehow, I would get you justice. His mother spoke directly to her son and to the men responsible for his death. These men have chose to lie and attack my son and his surviving family. They each have no remorse and do not deserve any leniency. This wasn't a case of mistaken identity or mistaken fact. They, cho they chose to target my son when they couldn't sufficiently scare him or intimidate him. They killed him. Arbery's family was clear. They hope for the maximum sentence possible. Me and my family, we got to live with his death the rest of our life. We'll never see a martyr again. So I feel they should stay behind them bars the rest of their life because they didn't give him a chance. The loss of a mind has devastated me and my family. So I'm asking that the man that killed him 
be given the maximum sentence available to the court. Last November, the McMichaels and Brian were convicted of murder after chasing 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery in their vehicles while he jogged in the Satilla Shores neighborhood, killing him after they say they thought they saw Arbery inside an unfinished home on February 23, 2020. It took two and a half months before arrests were made after video Brian took of the murder was released and went viral. The defense had his chance to argue for the opportunity to seek parole. Judge, you can send a message that four minutes of conduct does not erase a life well lived. And that after punishment, there is opportunity for redemption. Their legal saga not over yet. Attorneys for the three men say they will appeal. And next month, the McMichaels and Brian will be back in a federal courtroom when the trial for federal hate crimes begins. Jake, when you think about the powerful moments in court today, when the mother standing there speaking directly to her son, and then the judge really summing this entire case up, that moment of silence, that one-minute moment of silence, just a portion of the five minutes that Ahmad was chased was so chilling for a lot of people. Um, the people who were outside here fell silent as that was going on. It was really one of those days where people were sort of taken off guard by everything that's happened. And then you think about it, they got the justice that everyone here is, in terms of the family thought they should get all along. Ren Ryan, we should always remember it's only because that video was leaked that, that, that there was even charges, trial, conviction, sentences, and, and justice. Had that not happened, none of that would have happened. Yeah, you got to think about this. A viral video, one of the defense attorneys gave it to a radio station thinking it would clear the three men. Somehow when they watched that, they didn't see what everyone else apparently saw, including the judge. So when you think about this and the fact that the prosecutor who was involved in this case still has to see her day in court, it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. Had it been up to her, those three men would still be walking around free. Ryan Young, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's turn to another court hearing right now. This one involving the former New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. Today, a judge dismissed charges of misdemeanor, forcible touching against Mr. Cuomo following a decision from the Albany County District Attorney to not move forward with the case. Cuomo, as you will recall, resigned from office last year in the wake of a report from the state's attorney general detailing several allegations of sexual misconduct against him. CNN's Bryn Gingras joins us now live from New York. And Bryn, the DA in Albany said they found his accuser, Brittany uh, Camiso, cooperative and credible. So why is this happening? Yeah, Jake, for a couple of reasons that were laid out in a filing by the Albany County District Attorney David Soros earlier this week, he essentially said that he didn't feel like he could actually meet the burden of proof needed to win a case if this ever went to a trial in court. So that's the overlying thing, though. He also said in that filing, though, is that he was having trouble getting information available to him because there are other investigations that are still ongoing. And so this court appearance today, which was only 10 minutes long, it wasn't all that surprising that the judge dropped this uh, charge of uh, forcible touching, which is a misdemeanor. It lasted 10 minutes long, and Cuomo, the former governor, was only seen on camera in this virtual hearing for maybe less than two seconds. And in response to the district attorney's filing earlier this week, I do want to read for you quickly part of what uh, Camisso's attorney said on her behalf. She said the only He said the only thing she has any power over is her resolution to continue to speak the truth and seek justice in an appropriate civil action, which she will do in due course. So certainly this signals that this isn't the end of this uh, for both Cuomo and 
Camisso. I, I apologize for mispronouncing her last name. Uh, Brittany Camisso is her name. The judge uh, dismissed this charge, but this is not necessarily the end of former Governor Cuomo's legal battles, huh? No, that's exactly right. He has investigations or inquiries that are still happening on a federal level when it comes to uh, the administration's mishandling of the COVID death data in nursing homes and also these sexual harassment allegations uh, that we have seen, of course, coming from the attorney general's report over last summer. All right, Bryn Jane Grass, thank you so much. Appreciate it. How does the world's number one tennis player end up trapped inside a government-run hotel along with refugees and asylum seekers. That's ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, stuck in limbo. Tennis superstar Novak Djokovic, not vaccinated and not allowed to leave an Australian government hotel while he fights to stay in the country. You'll meet another man forced by Australia to stay at that same government hotel and has been for years. Plus, Walensky's woes, an in-depth look at the CDC director's alleged missteps as America's top public health agency deals with what even allies perceive to be a major communications problem, which during a pandemic could be deadly. A former CDC director will join us live and leading this hour. The jobs report spin after yet another disappointing monthly jobs report, the lowest, in fact, of his presidency, President Biden tries to find silver lining. CNN's Caitlin Collins starts us off from the White House, where President Biden tried to use today's jobs numbers to make a new pitch for his Build Back Better agenda, even though members of his own party admit a path forward on that legislation is difficult to see. President Biden dissecting a puzzling jobs report. I would argue the Biden economic plan is working. And it's getting America back to work, back on its feet. The U.S. economy adding only 199,000 jobs in December, even before Omicron's big surge, making it the weakest jobs report of 2021. But Biden is looking on the bright side, highlighting how unemployment fell to 3.9 percent, the best level since the pandemic began. The sharpest one-year drop in unemployment in United States history. Overall, the U.S. economy now has about 6.4 million more jobs than it did at the start of 2021, but it is still 3.6 million jobs short of pre-pandemic levels. We brought down the poverty rate. It went from 20 million people on unemployment rolls a year ago to under 2 million people on the unemployment rolls today. While acknowledging that inflation is still a persistent problem, Biden highlighted an impressive increase in wages. Desk clerks, line cooks, waitstaff, bellmen, their pay went up almost 16 percent this year, far ahead of inflation, which is still a concern. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh acknowledging there's still a lot of work to do. Clearly, we have some work to do in early 2022 here as we move forward here. We have work to do. There's no question about it. The president dismissing Republican criticism that he's out of touch with Americans' economic pain even deploying one of his favorite terms. A lot of people are still suffering, they say. Well, they are. Or that I'm not focused on inflation. Malarkey. They want to talk down the recovery because they voted against the legislation that made it happen. The Omicron variant ripping through the United States is also now delaying President Biden's State of the Union. Madam Speaker, the President of the United States. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi inviting the president to deliver his address on March 1st, making it the first time in nearly 90 years the historic address wasn't held in January or February. 
And Jake, the one silver lining for President Biden in delaying the State of the Union address is that he has more time to try to get his priorities passed because he has some big pieces of legislation that Democrats would like to get passed. Right now, as you noted, his Build Back Better agenda, that expansive climate and economic bill is all but stalled after Senator Manchin said he couldn't support it. Voting rights legislation is something that Democrats have said is now a top priority for them. Uh, But, Jake, of course, the longer they have, the more time the president has to try to get something else to add in that speech where presidents often tout their agendas. Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen from Maryland. He's on the Senate Budget Committee. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining us. Uh, Today's jobs report fell far below expectations when it came to the monthly job number. But but Biden tried to focus on the positives today. The unemployment rate is at 3.9 percent, which is very low. It's the first time it's been below 4 percent in a president's first term. And, and the most jobs added in any president's first calendar year were added uh, by Biden, 6.4 percent or under his watch anyway. Wages are up almost 16 percent. We still note, though, and I'm sure you hear from your voters, your constituents, inflation is still the highest in decades. Do all of the positives in that jobs report that Biden, that Biden touted get canceled out if people still cannot afford trips to the grocery store? Uh, No, Jake. First of all, as you said, and as the president indicated, uh, overall, this has been a very, very positive uh, year, record job growth, as you say. And uh, wages have gone up as well. And nominal wages um, are on the rise. As you say, costs have also increased. Uh, but it does look like for lower income Americans, uh, wage growth is still exceeding uh, any increase in costs. And this is also why we do want to continue to focus on the, the Build Back Better agenda. For example, if you look at the costs people are facing, child care remains um, one of the biggest uh, you know, burdens on American families. And so we still want to work to get that over the finish line and reduce those important costs, as well as costs of prescription drugs uh, and other prices, uh, high prices people are facing. Well, the, the, the holdup seems to be Senator Joe Manchin, who doesn't like the bill uh, as it is currently constructed. Uh, is there a version of the Build Back Better Act that he is willing to sign off on? And if so, why aren't you voting on it right now? Well, I think I think there is a version. I think the version I uh, he would support includes uh, those efforts to reduce the costs of prescription drugs and the provisions to include to reduce the costs of, of child care. Uh, so look, uh, discussions are going to be renewed, as you mentioned uh, earlier. Uh, right now, we are focused on passing voting rights legislation to protect the right uh, to vote. Uh, we just passed the one year anniversary of the awful attacks on our capital and our democracy. And and those attacks are continuing in state legislatures throughout the country. And so that is also a priority. We're just going to have to work through both of these priorities between now um, and the end of February. Well, let me talk to you about that election reform bill, because you need 60 votes for that unless you change the rules of the Senate. And Manchin and Sinema, the senator from Arizona, both Democrats, neither of them are on board on changing the rules of the Senate to pass that bill. There is Republican willingness uh, to look at the electoral reform bill. This has to do with how the electoral votes are counted, uh, which is where Trump ultimately tried to stage his final attempt to steal the election. Um, Your focus and the other Democrats, you're focused on votes being cast. 
But the real da- danger that we experienced as a country was in how votes were counted, not how they were cast. Why not join with Republicans and, and pass and work on a electoral count reform where there is bipartisan willingness, where something can be done? Well, Jake, first of all, I'm, I'm happy to look at any proposal Republicans or, or others have on that front. Uh, but the reality is that since the last election and because of the big lie, state legislatures have been putting up more barriers to people voting. And they're also talking about changing the rules on how you count votes to allow partisans in states around the country to overrule the count of the vote that as it initially comes in. So there are different tiers to the system that need to be protected. And what we've seen over the last year is when the big lie failed to overturn the election through violence at the Capitol a year ago yesterday, we've seen that same effort now in slow motion uh, across the country. And so we're not facing the same situation states around the country. Those, Those states are now trying to make it harder for people to vote. So I think you need every line of protection to protect the right to vote in America. Yeah, you can only do it, though, if you pass anything, though. But let me ask you about uh, something having to do with COVID, because we're seeing this struggle nationwide between virtual learning and in-person classes. A teacher in Maryland wrote an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun making the case for virtual, at least for now. She wrote, quote, in-person learning is not synonymous with continuous disruption-free learning. At this point in time, a temporary return to virtual instruction is the most effective option, one that does not require us to alter or modify our plans on a daily basis to reflect our ever-changing circumstances and our increasingly limited resources, unquote. You know, health experts say there is a way for kids to, t- to learn in person, and that's what they need. What do you tell teachers who say they, they want to go back to virtual learning uh, despite what health officials say, despite what parents want? Well, Jake, I think all of our, our preferences to be able to have kids back uh, in the classroom for in-person learning. Uh, I, I do think that decisions need to be based on a local basis, based on the intensity of the current uh, situation, Omicron, whether people are, are, you know, people are not able to make it to work because they're out sick. But I do think that our overall position needs to be um, making sure that kids can get back in the classroom. We need people vaccinated. And now, of course, uh, vaccines are more available uh, to younger Americans. Um, And we need we do need better testing uh, so that schools can take action uh, if there's an outbreak or a real spread in a particular school. But I do think the overall uh, situation needs to be um, let's try to get back into the classrooms. 100%. We need to improve testing. That's very important for the kids in the schools and the teachers. Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of the great state of Maryland. Thanks so much to you. Appreciate it. Coming up, credibility questions growing as the head of the CDC is facing fire from all sides. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a former acting director of the CDC. Also, one of the world's top tennis players is currently stuck inside an Australian hotel. The same hotel houses refugees. CNN's going to talk to one man who's been trapped in that same hotel for years. And our healthy, the CDC is trying to hit the refresh button after a series of cringy, confusing guidance amid the surge of the COVID Omicron variant, as CNN's Gabe Cohen reports for us now. The agency's director is under such intense pressure to get it right 
She hired a media trainer to help her with her communication skills. As we've articulated before, CDC is working on uh, updated guidance. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky facing renewed criticism from within the White House and her own agency after yet another guidance gaffe. A source telling CNN that CDC scientists are increasingly frustrated with Walensky's handling of guidance. And between her circumventing their vetting process for guidelines and the public criticism, morale at the agency is sinking. It really had a lot to do with what um, we thought people would be able to tolerate. It comes after the CDC cut the COVID isolation period from 10 days to 5, making no mention of a negative test drawing pushback from health experts and contradiction from the Surgeon General. They have certainly received uh, feedback and questions about the role of testing. As well as Dr. Anthony Fauci. I'm saying it's something that absolutely should be considered, and I believe the CDC is going to clarify that. They did, saying people can test if they want to, but if they test positive, they should isolate for five more days. The head of the American Medical Association says all of this is not only confusing, but risking further spread of the virus. I think the problem here isn't so much the guidance, it's the lack of effective communication about the guidance. Dr. Tom Frieden was CDC director under the Obama administration. And yes, there are some judgment calls. So be frank about them. Now CNN has learned Dr. Walensky is in media training. For months, she's been meeting with a consultant to improve communication skills. Today, she held a rare solo news conference. This is hard, and I am committed and to continue to improve as we learn more about the science and to communicate that with all of you. The well-regarded infectious disease expert had no government experience before President Biden appointed her and has often seemed out of step with the White House and Dr. Fauci, leading to some abrupt and confusing changes in guidance. In May, she announced vaccinated people could stop wearing masks indoors, drawing quick criticism that it was too soon. And last February, the White House had to clarify Walensky's comment that teachers did not need to be fully vaccinated for schools to reopen. Dr. Walensky um, spoke to this uh, in her personal capacity. Now, Walensky's under fire for not following the CDC's own playbook for explaining new guidance. A Biden COVID advisor tells me the CDC has got to do a better job communicating what they're doing and why. And that has to happen quickly. That's what happens when you lead with the data and the science and not lead with a clear communications plan. And now Dr. Frieden is urging the White House to move their COVID briefings from D.C. to the CDC headquarters in Atlanta to make this less partisan and to let the subject matter experts control more of the public messaging. And I'll also note that the Biden COVID advisor I spoke with told me This is really a larger coordination problem across the administration between the White House, the CDC, the FDA, and the National Institutes of Health. And blame here can't solely fall on Dr. Walensky. Jake. Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Uh, Appreciate it. Let's talk about this with Dr. Richard Besser, who was the former acting director of the CDC. Uh, Let's start with uh, our, our CNN reporting, Dr. Besser. Dr. Walensky got some media training last fall to help with her personal messaging struggles or challenges, was that necessary? Is that so extraordinary? It's not at all extraordinary. I'm a big believer in media training. The years I spent at CDC, I took advantage of media training whenever it was offered. Uh, And then I had the benefit of of many years working in media where I had training there as well in terms of communication. So I see that as a positive sign. You know, this is communicating science and and challenging decisions and and subtleties of, of, of options and situations that are changing 
it, it's not something that is is necessarily innate. You, you you definitely can learn ways to approach that that will help engender trust. Will will help uh, uh, people follow the guidance that you want them to follow. A CDC scientist tells CNN that Dr. Walensky issued this recent confusing guidance about isolation, uh, using only the advice of a small circle of top advisors instead of. I guess what some people consider to be a more traditional process of rigorous vetting by CDC experts, outside public health partners and others. Does that raise any red flags for you? Or is that or is that how it works when you're like in the middle of a crisis like COVID? Well, you know, it's it, it's hard for me to, to comment on that, Jake, without knowing knowing all the details. I, I, I would say that I thought it was a very positive sign that Dr. Walensky was doing a briefing from CDC headquarters today. You know, when I when I was the acting director of CDC during the swine flu pandemic, um, I relied on those briefings, direct briefings to, to reporters for a number of things. One is it helped me get an understanding of what the public was concerned about. Uh, reporters often asked really challenging questions that far, forced us to challenge our own own assumptions. And it separated out the science that was taking place at CDC with how that science informed political decisions, policy decisions that sometimes came out of, out of Washington. You know, science needs to inform policy decisions, but it's not always the sole factor that goes into them. And that can be a, a challenging thing to communicate. Having the separation will be very valuable. One of the problems with this latest confusing guidance, I have to say, on whether individuals who have tested positive uh, should get a COVID test before they leave isolation. Isolation went down from 10 days to five. I have to say, it's that this part isn't necessarily her fault. They were asked, you know, CDC was asked, should somebody take a test? And CDC ultimately said, well, that's, that's up to you. But the truth is, we have a testing shortage we, we don't have enough tests in this country. And that's not Dr. Walensky's fault. That's the Biden White House's fault. They promised that they were going to have tests everywhere for everyone whenever we needed them. And we're not there. And you yourself have experienced the frustrations of that shortage. Is it possible that part of this is also Walensky taking blame for Biden blunders? Well, I, I, I think that if we were in a situation, Jake, where there were there was an unlimited supply of of tests, uh, we probably would say, you know, reduce to five days and test coming out to make sure that someone still isn't positive. But that's not the situation that, that we're in. And it's very important that you have tests to determine up front who, who truly has COVID. Um, and so without that, I, I think that this is the right outcome. The challenge is that when someone says, well, OK, but what if I do test? What do I do? And the, the guidance coming out was, well, then you should pro- probably continue to stay in isolation for another five days. That leads to very mi- uh, mixed messaging. But I, I think your point is, is right. If there was an unlimited supply of tests, what would we do? And I think we would ask people to test to know that they're negative coming 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 out. The 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 critical piece there though is that people are most contagious early on and with each day after that the likelihood of you transmitting will will go down. And so some people will be able to transmit, but most people after 5 days will not. So anyone on social media, especially Twitter, knows that the CDC has become the butt of a lot of jokes over the last week. There's a series of of memes joking about what the CDC might recommend next. Uh, an example might be, you know, that we've seen. The, the CDC says you can now run with scissors. 
Uh, or there's another tweet also resonating with a lot of folks that capture the frustration of the moment. Quote, stay indoors, but also return in person. Wear a mask. Not that one. The expensive one that you can't find. Take rapid tests, which you also can't find. But if you find them, don't buy them. Rapid tests don't work. You need PCR. There are zero appointments in your area. Unquote. You worked at the CDC. How do jokes like that land inside the building? Yeah, I, I think they sting. Uh, you know, the the current CDC director uh, inherited a, a situation that, that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And that's coming in in the middle of a pandemic uh, uh, after a, a period of time where where public health was was vilified. Public health was lifted up as as the barrier to the end of the pandemic, as the enemy of our of, of our economy. And so coming into a situation where where the nation is polarized and trying to reassert the the importance of following the path of public health, uh, it was an unthinkable uh, challenge to to be addressing. And and we're we're seeing how hard that that actually is. Uh, I I hope coming out of this uh, as a nation, we're committed to supporting our public health systems, our federal system, our state, our local uh, as you've seen across the country, you know, hundreds of public health leaders have left uh, because of how they've been been uh, uh, viewed and, and treated within their communities. And that's going to have a long lasting impact on the health of our nation. Dr. Richard Besser, thank you so much. Good to see you again. The unusual warning from the secretary of state about letting Russians into your house ahead of a key diplomatic meeting. Stay with us. In our world lead today, NATO allies using some of the strongest language yet condemning Russia's massive military buildup along its border with Ukraine following what the alliance called an extraordinary video meeting today involving NATO's top diplomatic officials. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us now live from the U.S. State Department. Kylie, are there any indications that the U.S. and NATO are willing to make concessions to Russia if Putin agrees to de-escalate tensions with Ukraine? Jake, that's the million dollar question here. And publicly, the U.S. and NATO allies are saying, no, this is Russia's problem. They are the one who have escalated things along the border with Ukraine. They are the ones who need to pull back. They can't be awarded for the actions that they have taken. But privately, when you talk to U.S. officials and European officials, they acknowledge that this is a tricky situation. Russia is going to need to be given something so that it can domestically say, hey, here's what we got if they do decide to pull back those troops that are now located along the border with Ukraine. But the problem is that the United States is trying to act in lockstep with its NATO allies. And they are doing that today. Secretary of State Tony Blinken spoke with NATO foreign ministers discussing that they all agree that Russia needs to de-escalate things. But the administration is in a position today where they are pushing back very forcefully on a news report that said that they are preparing plans to potentially draw down some of their force posture in Eastern Europe if Russia does de-escalate things with Ukraine. They are saying that is not a true report. I want to read to you just exactly what State Department spokesperson tweeted about that this afternoon, saying, quote, it's not accurate that the administration is developing options for pulling back U.S. forces in Eastern Europe in preparation for discussions with Russia next week, which we told NBC while they're reporting the story. In fact, we have been clear with Russia publicly and privately that should Russia further invade Ukraine, 
we would reinforce our NATO partners on the eastern flank to whom we have sacred obligation as allies. Uh, Jake, this is a tricky situation, of course, because privately we do hear from folks in the administration that Russia is going to need to get something, but they are forcefully saying today that they're not going to be amending U.S. force posture in Europe because of what Russia is doing. Jake? All right, Kylie Atwood, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's get the reaction from Russia right now. CNN's Nick Roberts is live in Moscow for us. And Nick, is, is the Kremlin saying anything uh, about the strong condemnations from NATO allies about Russia's military buildup? Yeah, Jake, it's Christmas Day here and there's been nothing official from the government at all. What they have said very recently is they're not going to allow the talks to drag on. And there was a little bit of trolling from the foreign ministry, uh, basically saying that the, that NATO has abrogated on its agreement, uh, you know, two decades ago not to expand NATO eastwards into, into former Eastern Europe. Um, you know, that's something we've heard from them before, but there's nothing from the, from the, from the Kremlin here that advanced or responds directly to what uh, the strong language that came uh, from that meeting today. Ukraine isn't the only former Soviet republic uh, in which Vladimir Putin is meddling. He's also flexing his muscles by sending troops into the Central Asian country of Kazakhstan after protests there uh, turned violent. Uh, What's that about? Yeah, the president of Kazakhstan said he needed the support that he couldn't essentially crush the demonstrate the demonstrations uh, with the forces that he had. So he called on an old regional alliance of sort of former Soviet partners. Russia's the biggest one, uh, and immediately got a response. Russia has got about seventy military aircraft that are ferrying in troops and equipment. Paratroopers, the first then on the ground. They're going to secure government buildings um, in in Kazakhstan. They're also allowed to do uh, some crowd control break up crowds at their rules of engagement. If they're attacked by an armed gang, they're allowed to shoot back at that armed gang. But it's got everyone wondering, uh, has Russia gone in with the intention, the stated intention of, they say, a limited deployment? Or is President Putin looking at this situation as an opportunity to kind of extend some of his influence and control and reach into some of those former Soviet states uh, that his vowed opinion is should really be part of the bigger Russia today. And Nick, tell me about the president of Kazakhstan issuing this kill without warning order to his security forces. Yeah, that was chilling. Tokayev, the president, uh, announcing, you know, without blanching when he made the statement on, on national TV in Kazakhstan, he admitted, said quite clearly, uh, he issued uh, he issued an order to shoot and kill protesters without warning on the streets. We talked today with somebody who lives in Almaty, the biggest city in Kazakhstan. He reported heavy, heavy gunfire overnight, uh, seeing bodies on the streets today, people who had been uh, very clearly shot. The government says that 26, what they described as armed terrorists, uh, and again, they haven't provided evidence that these are armed terrorists, whom they say are trained outside the country. 26, they say, were killed. They say 18 were wounded. The numbers just don't stack up. I, I think there's a lot more to discover about the number of, number of killed and injured there. Among the protesters, they say that there were 26 uh, police law enforcement officers who were killed, uh, who were uh, 18 who were killed and 400, uh, more, than four, more than 700 police officers who were injured. Those numbers don't balance. They just don't add up at the moment, Jake. 
Nick Robertson in Moscow, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Be sure to tune in this Sunday to CNN State of the Union. I'm going to be talking with the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, ahead of the crucial U.S. meeting with Russia next week. We'll also talk to the New York City Mayor, Eric Adams, joining us after his first week in office, plus Arkansas's Republican Governor, Asa Hutchinson. It's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern this Sunday. Coming up, the surprising response to January 6th from Republican voters, some even saying that Don Jr. and Sean Hannity sounded more like Democrats in the text messages they sent to Donald Trump's chief of staff to stop the attack. Stay with us. In our politics lead, former President Trump seems increasingly to be in the crosshairs of the January 6th House Committee. Listen to what co-chair Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney told me last night. January 6th itself uh, was a line you just can't cross. The committee is looking at that, looking at whether uh, what he did um, constitutes uh, that kind of a crime. But certainly it's dereliction of duty. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now. And Ryan, we're getting a, a better idea of the shape of the investigation's 2022 focus. Yeah, that's right, Jake. And from the beginning, the committee has not ruled out finding criminal charges against either the former President Donald Trump or people that are closely associated with them for their role in what happened here on January 6th. But your interview with Liz Cheney last night crystallized the direction that they're heading. And it really seems to be focused on the conduct of Trump on the days leading up to and on January 6th itself. And what Cheney told you is that they're looking very closely at the former president's action or what she called inaction around the time that rioters were breaking into the Capitol. And what she suggested is that perhaps uh, Trump not calling them off and telling them to leave could actually be a crime because it prevented the certification of those election results. Now, it's not exactly clear where they're going to find the law to back up those charges and if they need more evidence to prove it. And the other thing we have to keep in mind, Jake, is that this committee doesn't have the ability to charge anyone with a crime. If they find evidence of a crime, they then have to refer that to the Department of Justice, which would decide whether or not they would prosecute. They still have a long way to go with their investigation. They certainly could uncover more, but it's clear that they're asking a lot of questions about what was going on in the Oval Office and in the West Wing, and they are talking to more and more people that are familiar with those events on the days leading up to and on January 6th. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. In the days after January 6th, Republican lawmakers promised to take action, pledged to hold Trump accountable. And now a vast majority of those very same individuals are silent or worse, stonewalling the investigation, whitewashing the attack on Congress, on democracy. So what do Republican voters make of this? When asked to briefly describe January 6th a year later, using just a word or so, members of a Republican focus group use these words, way overblown, scary, misrepresented, out of proportion. Republican strategist and pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson led that focus group discussion on behalf of the New York Times, and she joins us now. Uh, Kristen, six of the Republicans you talked to voted for Trump in 2020. Two did not. Was there an obvious divide between them? Not particularly. I mean, we had an, an interesting array of views in the group. Not everyone agreed on everything. But I think it was broadly representative of probably the median, I would say, 70 to 80 percent of the Republican Party. We didn't have anyone who was firmly never Trump. But we also didn't have anybody who was full, you know, way down a rabbit hole. Uh, you know, I, I think what you saw in this focus group was a pretty big representation or pretty good representation of what most Republican voters are, are, are thinking about January 6th. 
And one of the participants told you that January 6th, uh, in his view, was, was, quote, overblown. When you asked him to expand, the man whose name is Bernie, uh, Barney said, quote, nobody listened to the warnings saying there's people coming. So it's not a Pearl Harbor. It's not a 9-11. It's January 6, 2021. And it's just another day. Every day, if you live in Washington, you turn on the news, you hear January 6, 100 times a day. And if you go out to Oklahoma, you don't hear it. So it's where you are and what you hear. Was that the prevailing view? Did, did people agree or disagree? It seemed as though that was a sentiment that a lot of folks in the room, you know, would have nodded along with. We started off the focus groups by asking people, you know, name big days that happened over the last year. You know, we just had New Year's Eve. What were some big events that happened in 2021? And in the Democratic focus group, January 6th immediately came up. But in the Republican group, January 6th was not named. It wasn't until I prompted What about January 6th? What words come to mind when you think about that day that it was even on the radar for many of these respondents? So it's interesting because so many Republican leaders right during that day and in the days afterward were absolutely horrified, although now many of them are singing a different tune. Um, But in fact, on that day, we now know that there were text messages sent by individuals who are Donald Trump's supporters, allies, staffers, family members to Mark, uh, Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, you know, begging him to, to come before the cameras to call off the mob. You read some of those texts. You read texts by Donald Trump Jr., uh, Fox host Laura Ingram, asking Meadows to tell the then President Trump, do something. And two women in your focus group responded this way. Gail said, that's very surprising to me because they're saying what you would almost think what, what you would think almost a Democrat would say or a liberal would say. And Lorna told you, kind of shocking to me, you'd think they'd back the president. I mean, that's, that's just astounding. What's the significance of that to you? Well, I think it's also important to note, I mean, Gail, as one of our respondents, she was not someone who thought that January 6th was a good thing. She talked about feeling sort of upset astonished when she saw what was happening on TV. So in some ways, I I would imagine that on that day, she might have been feeling some of those same things that those hosts or that that uh, Donald Trump Jr. were were texting to the president. Hey, this is bad. You should you should step in and do something. But throughout the group, you know, later on, we asked a question about many of these Republican or conservative luminaries who have initially came out and said what happened on January 6th is terrible and sort of changed their tune a little bit afterwards. Jake, I'd assume that you think that their initial outrage was was probably pretty genuine and that their change afterwards is what's been more inauthentic. But for these voters, they saw it the other way around. They actually thought that those who came out and sort of initially said this was horrible, this was terrible, uh, Trump should not have instigated this or what have you, that, that they said that to them felt inauthentic, that that felt like Republican people trying to, to cover themselves and look for jobs and things in a post-Trump world. They didn't view that as inauthentic. They, they or pardon me, they didn't view the, the, the sort of change of tune as inauthentic. They viewed the initial condemnation of Trump as a, a safe phasing, face-saving sort of measure. It's just the upside down. It's just incredible. Um, you also asked the group how January 6th would be written down in history 100 years from now. Uh, you did find a diversity of opinion here. That's right. You know, some of them said, look, this is not going to be viewed as as a, a positive day in history. For some of them, they, they still didn't think it would be thought of as that big of a deal. But some said, look, this is what happens when people get very frustrated, when people believe that an election was stolen and that outrage turns into action. And so, 
you know, there weren't a unanimous in saying that they thought January 6th was no big deal. And, and very few even suggested it was a positive thing, but rather they thought an unfortunate day, but just one of many. Kristen Salty-Sanderson, fascinating as always. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. The world's Thanks, number Kate. one tennis player is stuck down under. CNN is going to talk to a refugee who's been stuck in the same hotel for years. He paved the way for so many other actors. We're going to take a look at the legacy of Hollywood legend Sidney Poitier. Stay with us. Topping our sports lead today, the world's number one tennis superstar, Novak Djokovic, is trapped in a canceled visa purgatory in Australia. As CNN's Paula Hancock reports, Djokovic is being held in a Melbourne hotel that doubles as a detention facility for refugees and asylum seekers. Fans of Novak Djokovic voice support outside his detention centre in Melbourne. He's not a criminal! He's a tennis hero! A far cry from his usual welcome. The world's number one tennis star is here until at least Monday, when a court will decide if he can defend his title at the Australian Open or be deported. Australia requires people to be fully vaccinated for COVID-19 to enter the country or have a medical exemption, something Djokovic's lawyers claim he has. Border officials and the Prime Minister disagree. Rules are rules. And there are no special cases. Back home in Serbia, Djokovic's parents hail him as a national hero being held captive. Mr Djokovic is not being held captive in Australia. He is free to leave at any time that he chooses to do so. Fellow tennis stars are weighing in. Australia's Nick Kyrgios, who has opposed unvaccinated players coming to his country, tweeted, I got vaccinated because of others and for my mum's health, but how we are handling Novak's situation is bad, really bad. America's John Isner tweeted, What Novak is going through right now is not right. There's no justification for the treatment he's receiving. Two more individuals have fallen foul of visa restrictions. One has already left the country, according to Australia Border Force. Renata Vorokova of the Czech Republic is the second, held in the same detention centre as Djokovic. Her visa also cancelled, but not before she had played in a warm-up tournament, according to the Czech Foreign Ministry, adding she is leaving Australia. Djokovic will leave Park Hotel detention in a few days, but dozens of asylum seekers and refugees inside this building do not know when they can leave. Mehdi tried to enter Australia by boat when he was 15, part of a persecuted religious minority from Iran. Today, he turns 24. We are suffering and we are exhausted and we are tired. We've been in detention more than uh, eight years. Mehdi says he's also been held in an offshore detention centre. Australia's harsh asylum seeker rules leave some waiting indefinitely to have their cases heard and have been criticised by the UN. I did not receive no proper education, no proper uh, healthcare, no proper basic human rights. I got traumatised, got insomnia, diagnosed by PTSD, suffered, suffered. While Mehdi welcomes the fresh attention his famous neighbour has brought, he knows it will likely leave with him, changing little in his uncertain future. Now, the Herald Sun newspaper, Jake, has published a letter which CNN is unable to uh, independently confirm, but saying that Tennis Australia told those players that they were able to have a prior infection up to six months and still enter Australia. Something officials say is simply not true. 
Jake. All right, Paula Hancock, thank you so much. We have some sad news in our pop culture lead. Legendary actor, director, and activist Sidney Poitier has died at the age of 94. In 1964, Poitier became the first black performer to win the Academy Award for Best Actor for his role in the film Lilies of the Field. Many of his best-known films, including Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, explored racial tensions as the country was beginning to grapple with those social changes in the 1960s. And Poitier fought for civil rights and to diversify Hollywood. Poitier always said he felt enormous responsibility to play complex roles, ones that transcended racial stereotypes. A giant and a hero. May his memory be a blessing. Coming up, Wolf Blitzer will talk to Ahmad Arbery's mother after her son's killers were sentenced to life in prison without parole. That's next in the Situation Room. I will see you on Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.